This morning's sermon text is from Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of the trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who, were, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling, sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which, which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God, for our God is a consuming fire. Thank you. Welcome, my brother Jeremy. I'm be seated. Thank you, brother. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, you are a holy God. Your power, your majesty, your very nature, Father, is so, so high, Lord, so far apart from what we are. We can't even understand how great you are. We don't have a category for it. Father, we pray that even though even though our minds can't fully grasp these things, Lord, we ask that you would reveal your holiness. We ask that you would reveal to us your glory, your greatness, your your worth, insofar as we are able to understand it so that we might come before you the proper mindset, Lord, the proper posture of reverence and awe and worship. 
And we thank you for your word. We pray that you'll open it up for us this morning. Help us to see the truth you have for us there and to accept it with faith and to live it out. And we love you and thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. All right. We are um, in our last our last installment here of uh, of our series on God's order. And I've taken us down a pretty long road uh, to get us here to this point. And I, I hope uh, that some of what I, I, I've had to say has been helpful. I hope it's all been helpful. But uh, at the very least, I hope that everybody has seen that uh, the truth that God is a God of order, right? Uh, in all that he does, in everything that he does, um, th this, this orderliness is his nature. It's who he is. Uh, he's an orderly God, and because we are his people, it's necessary for us to be an orderly people, meaning that we, uh, we need to submit ourselves to the order that he's placed in nature and the order that he has uh, commanded us to observe in our relationships with one another and in how we relate to him uh, in our worship. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, and talk about God's order for how we are to worship him. Uh, specifically, our, our corporate worship of him, our, our time of worship together. Uh, you know, we need to understand, first of all, that as Christians, uh, our, our entire lives are to be an expression of worship to him. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says that we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Um, so we can't make the mistake of thinking that our worship of God is just confined to our time here on Sunday morning. Worship is about all of life, all of life, not just Sunday mornings. Um, but today, I do want to, to focus specifically on, on his desire and, and his order for how we're to worship him together as a church, as a body. So, let's begin uh, by answering the question, why do we worship? Why do we worship him? Why do we worship God? If, if your first thought, your first reaction there to that question is something like, um, I worship him because he, he's done this for me, or he's, he's blessed me in this particular way, um, you're on the wrong track, right? You're on the wrong track. Uh, it's perfectly acceptable and right to offer him praise and thanksgiving uh, for all of the wonderful works that he's done in our lives. And this should be part, this should be part of our worship of him, our, our thanksgiving. Um, but it's not the reason that we should worship him. So think about it this way. There, there are probably many people, many people who have done wonderful things for you, right? Very generous and thoughtful, and sometimes maybe even things that, that require some amazingly uh, selfless sacrifice. But does that make those people worthy of your worship? Right? Your gratitude, yes, sure. Uh, we should express our gratitude to people when they do things like that. But again, there's a difference between gratitude and worship. So we might be tempted to think here, that it's sort of like the measure of what God gives that makes him worthy of worship. Right? He's, given, he's given so much. He's done so much. He's done things for me that are so great and so wonderful 
And nobody could possibly ever do as much for me as God has done. Right? But then think about what, what we're thinking there. It's like there's some scale of generosity that has a, a worthy of worship line on it. And anything that, uh, that's above that line is worship level generosity. Um, it, it's true. It's true that God has blessed all of us in unimaginable ways. But imagine if some human, if some human were able to, to, to give you everything that your heart ever desired, and they were somehow able to make your life just like a picture-perfect uh, dreamland of happiness and satisfaction, um, that, that person would still not be worthy of worship. And so maybe now we're, we're getting a little bit closer. Maybe now we're having the thought that will bring us closer to the truth. Right? That person, no matter what they're able to do for you, they're not God. They're not God. Right? And, and, and that's why we worship him. We worship him because he's God. Simply because he's God. He is worthy of all worship just by the nature of who he is. And because this type of God made us, we come pre-programmed as worshiping beings. It's, it's, it's built into us. It's what we're made for. So uh, let's look at Romans chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 33. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Look, look at this God. Look at this holy God. He is, he's indescribably great and wise. No one can add anything to him or demand anything from him. Everything came from him. Everything is being held together and kept in motion through him. Everything is being sustained by his power. And everything that exists, everything that he does, he does for one ultimate purpose, right? To glorify himself. All things are to him, from him, through him, and to him. And that's including you and me. Uh, we, we were made to glorify him through our worship of him. Uh, the next verse is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, therefore, all things are from him and through him and to him. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So because we were made by a holy God whose very nature demands that he be worshipped, it is in our very nature to be worshipers. It's, it's inescapable that we will worship something. This is true of every single human being. We are fundamentally religious beings. And Paul recognizes this. And so he urges the Romans, he urges the Romans by the mercies of God. I pray brothers that God will be merciful to you and that he will bring forth a spiritual service of worship from you for himself. 
May God be merciful to you and direct your worship to the only one worthy of worship. If we don't worship him, um, we're going to worship something. So if it's not him, but we offer our worship instead to uh, some some vain idol, we offer ourselves as, as living sacrifices to some vain idol, then God will be glorified, but he'll be glorified through a display of his justice and righteousness when he pours out his wrath and judgment on all those who rebel against his order by worshiping some unworthy thing. Right? He, he will be glorified in one way or the other, just as we will worship one thing or the other. So Paul pleads with the Romans, he's, he's, worship God, worship God. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. It's what you were made for. Right, so um, let's turn to, to Revelation chapter four. Um, the sermon on worship, you got to go to Revelation. Revelation is the book of the New Testament that probably has the most to say about worship. You know, we don't often think about it that way, but um, we'll see it here. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So, so John, John the Revelator here, he's been given a vision of the heavenly throne room of God. In verse 5, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Try to imagine this. Try to imagine being in the presence of this. Try to imagine what John must have felt like there. Thunder and lightning and fire and light and, and these beasts. Uh, th these, are the, th these are the cherubim who sit in the midst of the throne of God guarding his holy presence and who are constantly engaged in their own worship of him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then the, the, the 24 elders around the throne, which symbolizes all believers, right? They, they represent the fullness of the church of Christ. And they, they throw down their crowns before him, symbolizing the offering to God of all of their earthly gain, their, 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 their living sacrifice. And then they say in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. You, you are worthy to receive our worship because you're God, because you are God, and from you and through you and to you are all things. 
And in the next chapter, we see the same worship uh, being offered to Christ, to, to the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Uh, let's look over a page or so in your, in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I want to uh, I want to point out something here. God is is worthy of worship because he's holy. Because he's God, and the best way for us to think of holiness as it relates to God is that he is other. He is other. Right? The word holy means to be set apart from something, and God is set apart from everything. From everything. He says, "I am God and there is no other god like me. There's nothing like me. He is so different." so different and so far above everything else in his majesty. He is so other, so other than that there is nothing to compare him to. There's absolutely nothing even close to being anything like him. And that's, that's why, that's why he, he's called I am. That's why he called himself I am. I am who I am, or I am that I am. I am, and I always have been, and I always will be. I am, and no one else is. He's holy, completely set apart from his creation. And part of what makes him holy, part of what sets him apart, is that he is a trinity. Our God is a trinity, the triune God. He's three persons in one glorious and eternal being. And there is no other being like that. And, and these chapters here express that aspect of his holiness. Right? We, we saw the Father on the throne in the previous chapter. In chapter 4. Now we see the Son in chapter 5, the, the, the slain Lamb of God. And here we see the Lamb is crowned with seven horns and seven eyes. Right? Seven horns and seven eyes. Horns in Scripture are symbols of, of power. The horn in Scripture symbolizes power, and eyes represent wisdom and knowledge. Um, and the passage here says that these seven horns and eyes of the Lamb represent the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. And if you remember from the previous chapter, we read earlier in verse 5, it said, before the throne of the Father there were seven lamps of fire. Uh, and these also were said to be the seven spirits of God. So you got seven lamps of fire and you got seven horns and seven eyes on the Lamb. Both of these symbols should be recognized as the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Godhead. So you got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Seven is the number of perfection. Uh, so this is the spirit of perfection, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and power and light, right? This is the symbology we got here. And fire, lamps of fire. Uh, he descended his tongues of fire upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Fire is often a picture of the Spirit, right? So all three persons of the Godhead are represented here in these chapters in this glorious picture of holiness and power and worship, right? Every picture, every picture that we're given here in this account of John's vision, it, it, just, it just screams of the power and the majesty and the holiness of our triune God. 
Right, verse 7, picking up in verse 7. And he, uh, that is the lamb, he came forth and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. They sang a song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Philippians chapter 2 says that, that because Christ was obedient and he humbled himself, he humbled himself on the cross to save his people, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and we see we see this happening here. We see the angels bowing and confessing in worship uh, here in, in verse 12. It said, uh, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see this over and over again. The beasts, the elders, the angels, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you to receive worship. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The elders, the beasts, the angels, everything in heaven and on earth, every knee and every tongue, acknowledging the worthiness of our holy God to be worshiped by all of his creation. But, so I brought us here because I want us to see something. Um, I, I want us to see uh, that, that just by being who he is, God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship just because he's God. But I also, I also want us to understand uh, that this, this, this scene right here that John experienced in his vision, this is a reality that we are participating in right now. Right now. God is on his throne right now. And Christ is, has opened up the way for us to come before that throne. And, and that's what this is. That's what this is. That's what we're doing right now. We are before the throne of God right now. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. That's what Jason read for us earlier. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. It says, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So this is a reference uh, to Mount Sinai, right? the, the, the mountain that could be touched is Mount Sinai. Uh, during the days of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, God descended upon a mountain 
in a storm and fire and smoke, just like we saw surrounding him in John's vision. And, and when he spoke, the, the people cowered in fear and begged him not to speak again. And no creature was allowed to even touch the mountain, not even a, not even a beast. Right? This, this is the nature of the holiness of our God. These Israelites, they could not even touch the ground that God occupied under pain of death. But the, but the writer of Hebrews says that we haven't come to that kind of mountain. Uh, verse 22. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. We haven't come to an earthly mountain. Right, this earthly mountain, it, it represented the, the, the earthly nature of old covenant religious practice. Right, the mountain was a shadow of the spiritual, just like the old covenant worship was a shadow of new covenant worship. But even that worship, even old covenant worship could get you killed if you didn't practice it according to God's exact specifications. So, so much so uh, that, that, that even Moses was afraid. He was, he was full of fear and trembling. But we, brothers and sisters, we enter into the very throne room of God. We come into his holy place in heaven where, where the angels abide and where all of the saints are enrolled, including you and I, including us, because we, because we are in Christ and Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It is a spiritual reality that we are seated in heaven with him right now. Right now. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Um, if, you, if you have a paper Bible, keep your finger in Hebrews because we'll be back in a minute. But Ephesians uh, 2, verse 4. And it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is why I believe that the, 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 the 24 elders and Revelation 4, represent all believers. Uh, that, that's what they symbolize there in those chapters. Because all believers, all believers are seated in that throne room, in that heavenly place of worship. We're seated with Christ. <clears throat> Earlier, I asked you to imagine what it must have been like to be in that throne room with John, worshiping God alongside the beast's and the angels. Well, imagine it. Imagine, ask God to help you see the reality because you're there. You're there right now. 
what I'm saying here, what all this means, we need to be mindful that there is a spiritual reality that exists all around us. Right? There's a spiritual world all around and throughout this one. And if, if we refuse to see it, refuse to acknowledge it, if we just carry on with our lives and carry on with our worship as if this that we see is all there is, it's not just that we're missing something. It's not just that we're missing out on something. We are, we are entering into this holy place unworthily. We're entering to this holy place without the understanding, without the reverence and the awe that we should have. Right? The, 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 that world, that spiritual world, the spiritual reality is more real and more lasting um, and more consequential. It means more than this temporal cursed world that we're in now, this, this temporary world that's passing away like a vapor. Our citizenship in heaven is more real and more lasting and more consequential than our American citizenship, right? That's going to be gone one day. There's not going to be an America in eternity. Um, and in the same way, the spiritual reality of our occupation of heaven before the very throne of God is more real. It's more real than our occupation of this room here in this old metal building. Right? When we come here to worship, we're all, we are sitting in the presence of God. Right? And the angels and the cherubim and all of God's redeemed saints are worshiping right alongside us. So when, when God came down to Sinai, Moses trembled in fear to approach him. But we... We have ascended to God in Christ. We've gone up to his place, to the heavenly Mount Zion. And so just a, a little further down from where we left off in Hebrews in chapter 12, uh, and picking up in verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. So if Moses was full of fear and trembling when God approached him on earth, how much more should we feel the weight of God's holiness when we approach him in his heaven? Our God is still a consuming fire. Remember, uh, remember Nadab and Abihu? Talked about them a couple of weeks ago. Aaron's sons. How they offered a strange fire before the Lord. They, they attempted to worship, in a, worship him in a way that he had not commanded them. That's what the scripture says. They, they, they brought him strange fire that he had not commanded them. And scripture says in Leviticus chapter 10, when they did that, that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And here we have a New Testament author telling us that our God is still that kind of God. He is still a consuming fire. And the only reason that any of us, that any of us survive in his presence, 
is because we're clothed in Christ. That's it. But the fact that we're clothed in Christ, the fact that God has been merciful to, 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 to cover us in his son, doesn't give us an excuse to approach him glibly or carelessly in our worship. It doesn't give us an excuse uh, to worship him in ways that he has not commanded us. And I want you to think about that. <clears throat> when they have been Abihu, it says, they brought him strange fire that he had not commanded them. Right? It's, 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 it's not even that they were directly breaking a command, that they are doing something uh, that, he, that, that, that he had told them not to do. It's that they weren't doing something in the way that he told them to do it. So this doesn't, the fact that we're clothed in Christ doesn't give us an excuse to, to, to worship him in ways that he has not commanded us according to our desires and our preferences and not his. We worship God according to his preferences, according to his desires. So I want to spend the rest of our time uh, talking about the way that God has commanded us, uh, his, his new covenant people, to worship him. He's told us, just as he told the old covenant Jews, what he expects from us in worship. And, and because we worship this kind of God, because we worship this, this holy, consuming fire of a God, we need to be careful to worship him on his terms. So I'm going to give you a list. Right? I don't normally do this. I, I, I know I'm not the easiest one to take notes from. I'm going to work on that. Uh, but but this would be worth writing down. Right, so uh, first, the first element of, of true worship. Uh, to worship properly, we must make God the focus. God has to be the focus. And I, all of you say, of course. Of course, God must be the focus. Right, but do we really believe that? How often... How often when you think of worship, have you thought of it, uh, have you thought of it in terms of, of how it made you feel? How often when you think of worship, do you think about it in terms of how it made you feel? Uh, you might have even judged the quality of a worship service by what you got out of it. Right? The, the, the music was just so anointed. It gave me goosebumps and it brought tears to my eyes. Now, now that was worship. Who's the focus there? Who's the focus? That was good worship. It really made me feel good. Whether our worship has been a spiritual and true worship that is acceptable to God has absolutely nothing at all to do with how it makes any of us feel. Nothing to do with it. Have we been obedient to him in it? Did we offer it from, from a genuine place of reverence and awe and humble gratitude? Did we do all that we could to make it all about him? That's what God calls a true and spiritual worship. Right? That's, what, that's what the anointing of the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Spirit does in our worship. He tunes our heart to God's commands. He 
tunes our heart to focus on God. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you like the songs. It, it doesn't matter if you cry. Now, the beauty of this, the beauty of this is that just like so many other things that God has worked into his commanded order, when we worship him in his way, when we do things his way and not our own, we do receive benefits from it. We do. We're, we're, we're strengthened. We're edified. We're blessed. Much more than we could ever be from just enjoying a song. The, the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling. He's the third person of the Godhead. Can we feel his presence? Sometimes. Sometimes. If we don't feel his presence, does it mean that he's not there? Are you a believer? Are you in Christ? Then the Holy Spirit is in you, always. And when we're together, he's in our midst, always. And the more faithful and obedient we are, the more we will experience his power in our lives. His power for sanctification, power for joy, power to love, power to worship. That's what the Spirit does. That's what he gives us. <clears throat> but in order to, 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 to experience this anointing, in order to, to fully understand it, to, to, to walk in it, uh, to worship in it, we need to make sure that we're making this time all about God, right? Both in our hearts and in our service. So the second element of true worship, number two, is we must gather. In order to worship corporately, we need to be corporate. We need to be gathered together. We're to be, <clears throat> excuse me, we're to be an assembly before the Lord. An assembly before the Lord. Hebrews 10.25 says that we are not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. There, there are so many people who claim the name of Christ who see no problem with disobeying this command. This command of God. There's an attitude that is, that is more and more prevalent in our society today. Um, and I believe it's mostly because of things like phones and social media. Uh, but there's this attitude that says, um, all I need to worship God and, and, and learn from him and be the church is I just need me and my Bible under a tree, as Trey likes to say, uh, maybe with a nice cup of coffee. And I can gather, I can gather by, by, by sharing, uh, encouraging posts and memes on Facebook and offering some, some encouraging comments on my favorite friends' posts. Maybe I'll even have a phone conversation, uh, watch a sermon on YouTube or a live stream. And I've done church. I've gathered. I interacted with people. Come on. Wouldn't it be nice if it were that easy? Wouldn't it be nice? Then we would never have to expose ourselves to any of the difficult relationships that can come from actually getting to know people. We wouldn't have to actually get involved in anyone's lives uh, beyond the time it takes to send a, a, a text message. We wouldn't have to subject ourselves to any authority. 
just our own. We're opening ourselves up and become vulnerable. We wouldn't have to show anyone who we really are. Right? We can project any, any image we want when we're hidden behind our devices. We can hide our sin and our mess a whole lot easier. See, this, this is the easy way. This is the easy way. But God hasn't called us to the easy way. He didn't. We saw last week that God does much of his work of sanctification through our relationships with one another within the church. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14, Romans 12, all of Timothy and Titus, and the list goes on and on. All of these passages make it crystal clear, crystal clear that it is part of God's commanded order for his people to gather, to be together often as his church. And, and, and sure, this can get messy. It does get messy. We're people, sinful people. It's hard. But, but that's the way God made it to be. Right, that this is his order for how we're to live as Christians. And if we're obedient to God in this way, if we'll step into these things, then he'll use that to teach us humility. He'll teach us to be gracious. He'll teach us to be selfless. And he'll bless us with wisdom and knowledge through it and all of it. That's what I was saying last week. This is the thing. This is what makes us more like Christ. This is what makes us more like Christ. Stepping into the hard things. Viewing each other as brothers and sisters. Tolerating one another. Um, you can't be effectively discipled over the internet. You can't lay hands on someone. You can't baptize someone. You can't take communion with the brethren over the internet. You can't properly worship God in all the ways that he's commanded us to worship him outside of gathering physically with his people for that purpose. So another aspect of this, uh, th this command to gather is that we are all to gather. We're all to gather, men and women, young and old. Right? We are all meant to be together in worship. So, as you all know, uh, we made the decision to forego the practice of, of separating children and the adults that would have to watch over them from our time of corporate worship. Right? We had an opportunity to discuss this a bit um, the other week at our last uh, our congregational meeting, but I'd like to go a little bit further in explaining uh, why we believe that it's more beneficial to the whole body, to the whole body, not to separate the children during worship. And so I want to begin with the, the scriptural justification for it. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is having a discussion with some Pharisees, and he's explaining his answers, uh, that he's answering the Pharisees to his disciples, um, and some people come up to him. Some people come up to him, bringing their children with them. And they want Jesus to minister to the children and to lay hands on them and pray for them. 
And it says that the disciples rebuked them. They rebuked them. What are you doing? What are you doing? Can't you see, can't you see grown folks are talking here? This isn't a time for children. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He says, don't exclude them from this. These are, these are my people too. Children are my people too. In Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul actually he addresses the children directly in his letters, right alongside everyone else. He writes directly to the children. He assumes that the children will be present with the rest of the congregation as his letter is read and discussed. He just assumes it. The kids are going to be there. He includes them in, their let in his letter. Um, and another point. God has established preaching and teaching and the reading of his word as the means by which he brings about faith in his people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how can they hear without a preacher? That's Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing. This includes our children. This includes our children too. Why would we deprive them of this? The Holy Spirit can apply the power of the word to the heart of a child just as easily as he can an adult. And then, uh, aside from that, there are the many commands, the many commands in Scripture for us to consider one another greater than ourselves, more important than ourselves, to bear with one another's weaknesses and to show honor to one another. This includes the children. This includes kids. And it includes honoring these children by tolerating their presence. While they hear the songs of praise and do their best to sing along, and while they sit under the preaching of the word, and while they learn from the example of those they look up to, from their parents and from their brothers and sisters in the Lord, while they see what it is to worship together as the body of Christ. Do we, do we think of the children when we read passages like these? Right. We should. There, there's no partiality with God. No partiality with God. That's Romans 2.11. This is good for us, church, when we do this. It's good for us, for all of us. View it, view it as a means of sanctification. And it's an opportunity to honor these little ones as they sit under the word. It's the source of their salvation and sanctification just as much as it is ours. And one last word on this. We have not decided to stop doing children's ministry. We have not decided to stop doing children's ministry. I hope you can see that this is children's ministry that we're doing right now, right? These children are being ministered to right now. And we believe that this type of ministry is far too valuable for the training up of these children in godliness for us to forsake it for anyone's convenience. 
But to be clear, there's absolutely no problem, no issue with having age-targeted teaching and activities, right? Where we, where we gather all of the children together and have a special time of ministry with them. Nothing wrong with that. Just not during our Lord's Day service. Just not right now. We need to be the type of church that strives to come alongside parents and disciple them so that they'll see that it's their responsibility. It's the parents' responsibility. Uh, and, and so that they have the means to disciple their children at home. <clears throat> That's where a majority of that needs to happen. Instead of falling victim to the very common mindset that it's it's primarily the uh, the the job of the children's church teachers or the youth pastor to make sure that children are being trained up and discipled in the Lord. We can't afford we can't afford to accommodate that attitude anymore. There's too much at stake. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, number three, number three, the third element of true worship. Our worship together must include the public reading of Scripture. The public reading of Scripture. Right, so now we're getting into the, uh, the more liturgical stuff, right? Uh, liturgy. Liturgy just means an order of service. That's it. Right? As, as our brother Jason mentioned in a sermon a couple of months ago now, every church has a liturgy. Everyone. We had one before. Before Danny left. While Danny was here, we had a liturgy. Three songs, a prayer, a sermon, another prayer, and a last song. Right? And honestly, we even had sort of a, a call to worship before. Right? What, what would Danny always ask right before the first song? Remember? Y'all ready to worship? Let's do it. That, that was part of the liturgy. That's all it is. Right? Even if a church determines to try to be as, as completely random as possible right, and never do the same thing in the same sequence twice, that is their liturgy. Random is their liturgy. They have a way that they do things, and they do it every Sunday. Random. <clears throat> so the first aspect of these liturgical elements is the public reading of Scripture. Um, Paul reminds Timothy, uh, the, 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 the young evangelist and his helper in his apostolic duties, he says to him in 1 Timothy 4.13 uh, that Timothy is to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. To devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. So aside from our sermon Scripture readings, uh, we've also begun doing this in our call to worship. That's what we do. We, we read Scripture. Um, and in our benediction, right? the, the, the benediction is where whoever uh, preaches stands up at the end and does this and uh, pronounces a blessing from the scriptures. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. But in, in doing both of these things, we're just incorporating a little bit more uh, of this element of public reading into our worship. And, and, and we're commanded by God to do this. But the, the, the call to worship also serves another purpose. Um, and that is to call us to worship. Uh, we do it to remind us of what we're here to do and to help us to remember the, the, the joy and the seriousness of it. 
right? It's intended to help us to prepare our hearts to worship God in spirit and truth, just as he's commanded us. And, and, and just in, in relation to this, going back to the second point for a second about how we're to gather together in worship, it's important for all of us to realize uh, that, that this time of worship, this good and acceptable service that we're offering to God, requires the participation of all of God's people in the gathering, right? Meaning, uh, meaning that no one is supposed to be passive in this service at any point. No one is supposed to be passive in this service. This is not a time for the people on the stage to be active and for everyone else to just sit back, right? In every element of our worship service, everyone must be participating in every element. When, when, when Elijah and Allison and Trey lead us in singing and music, we all need to be singing and making music in our hearts to the Lord. When one of the elders is praying, we all need to be praying in agreement. When the word of God is being read or preached, we all need to be listening, hearing, receiving the word or reflecting on that word and how God's speaking to us in it. You don't have to hear every word, but we should direct our thoughts uh, to godly things during this time. So if something that's said uh, up here strikes a chord with you, go to God with it. Go to God with it right here. So I'm saying all this just to prepare you that we are probably going to begin uh, very soon incorporating some more responsive elements during our, our call to worship, right? Meaning we're going to ask you to speak back to us. Um, and, and in the future, we might add that type of a, uh, that type of thing in some more areas as well. So just a, by way of a heads up. All right, element number four. Number four is prayer. Prayer. We're to make our worship gatherings a time of prayer. Prayer is worship. Prayer is worship. It's an expression of our absolute dependence on God in all things, as well as uh, an expression of the faith that we have that God hears the prayers of his people and that he has the power to answer them. It's an acknowledgement of his greatness. That's what prayer is. It's an acknowledgement of God's greatness. We know you love us. We know you hear us. We know you can do anything we're asking you to do. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read that the earliest church was continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it is a huge blessing. You know, it's a huge blessing that we've begun expanding our prayer time together by meeting early to pray before service, um, in addition to the prayers that, uh, of the elders before and after preaching. Uh, th th this is, um, we're honoring God in doing that. We're being faithful in doing that, and God uh, will bless that. So element number five, the fifth element of true worship, is the preaching of the Word. It's preaching. Now, we talked about the reading of the Word, but the preaching of the Word is something altogether different. Right? In, in 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul tells Timothy that in his service to the church in Ephesus, he is to preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 
That's 2 Timothy 4.2. Again, preaching is the primary means that God uses to convert sinners and to edify and disciple saints. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How can they hear without a preacher? Romans 10. So that, that's why he's gifted men for the task. That's why he's given men the gift of preaching and teaching. It is a necessary part of the Christian life to sit under preaching. This, this has been the main job of church leaders and evangelists throughout the New Testament and the rest of history. And it's the preaching of the word that results in the salvation and sanctification of God's people. So we, as elders of this church, are committed to doing uh, what's called expository preaching. You've probably heard the word a few times from up here. Uh, expository preaching. Expository preaching is about opening up the scriptures for people. It's about taking the word and digging deep into it and drawing out all the meaning that God intends for us to see in it. Um, I've, I've said multiple times that we, uh, as elders, we want to give you the word. We want to give you the word. We don't just want to tell you to read your Bibles. We want to show you how to read your Bibles. So, that, so uh, what this is going to look like, expository preaching, is um, we're, we're going to begin preaching our way through the Scripture. One book at a time, one verse at a time. And, and maybe one day the Lord will be gracious and allow us uh, to have preached through the entire Bible. I don't know. Um, but some of the benefits, some of the benefits of this type of preaching, of expository preaching, is that it forces the preacher and the church and the hearers to address all of Scripture. All of it. Well, we can't just harp on our favorite doctrines and we can't avoid the difficult sections. We have to take it as it comes. Um, it also helps to keep us from just preaching our word. Uh, for, we can't just take a verse and just spin it whatever way we want to make whatever point we want to make. Uh, context. Context is built in to expository preaching. It's built in. You can't avoid it. So, uh, admittedly, I have not been doing expository preaching up here these last nine weeks. Right? I have exposited some scriptures, and some I've just read, and some I've used to support certain points I was making. Um, that, that's what I've been doing this morning. This is uh, more topical preaching, is what you would call this. Um, and it, it is, this isn't always bad. It's not, topical preaching is not always a bad thing, unless, unless... It's all a preacher ever does. But we want to, we, we, we chose to do things in this way, in the way that, that we've been doing them, in the way that I've been doing them uh, the last nine weeks, because we, we're, we want to lay a foundation for y'all. We're trying to lay a foundation um, to solidify and just to back up some of the doctrines that we'll be teaching <clears throat> and to explain some of the changes in practices. Uh, that we're making. We want to show you that our reasons for doing these things are rooted in Scripture and that there are good and right changes to make. And they are. So I'm not promising that we'll never uh, see the need to preach a topical sermon or even a series again every now and, and then. But, but I think all three of us look forward to just getting into a book 
getting into the scriptures and going wherever it takes us. Right? We, we want to let the word speak. And that's what expository preaching does. Uh, number six, element number six, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, Colossians chapter three, verse 16. I do have this one here. <clears throat> Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 says the same thing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I know it was a bit of an adjustment uh, for us as a church when we first started singing the psalms together about like four years ago now. Um, but this is why we do it. This, this is why we do it. How many of y'all even knew this verse was here? Churches are supposed to sing psalms. They're supposed to. It's a command of scripture in two different verses. <clears throat> the, the book of Psalms is God's songbook. It's God's songbook. And there is no better song we can sing to God and to one another than the ones that God wrote for that very purpose. This is a, a prime example of, of what I was talking about earlier. Right, just to illustrate this, our, our tendencies to want to make worship about us. If we're in a place in our hearts where we would rather hear and sing the songs in church that, that we like in worship, and if it puts us off when we sing the songs that God explicitly commanded us to sing in worship, that's a sign that we made about ourselves. That's a sign that our focus in worship is not God. It's on us. Our preferences don't matter here. They don't. There is no song that we could sing that is more perfect and more true than the ones that God wrote. And, and that is the most important thing about the songs we sing together. Right? Not that they sound nice. Uh, not that they give us the warm fuzzies or the goosebumps that we often mistake for the Holy Spirit. It's that they're true. It's the most important thing. I mean, I've been in, in a lot of rock shows, right? And I've listened to many uh, powerful lyrics and, and musical arrangements that had nothing to do with God. Many of them were even blasphemous, just outright uh, blasphemous. But they gave me the goosebumps. They gave me the they made me tear up. Sometimes they made me raise my hands to the sky with the rest of the crowd. It made me happy. That's the power of music. That's the power of music. God gave us music, and he programmed us to enjoy it and to be moved by it. That is a gift of God. <clears throat> but that's also exactly why it's so important for us to be careful with it, because it is powerful. 
<clears throat> and we especially have to be careful with it in worship. So there are many Christian artists uh, out there. You hear them on K-Love. And uh, many of them, they advocate for some very heretical beliefs. Right? And even if their songs sound good, we can't in good conscience sing them in here. Um, because in a way, that'd be like advocating for them and, and, and these false beliefs. So <clears throat> we might sing a song here that somebody really likes. Right? If we were to do this, uh, sing one of these songs. A person might really like it, and they might seek out the re like the recording of that song or that artist, and that could open up a door uh, into false teaching. So it's, it's like, well, oh, if they wrote a song like that that made me feel so close to God, then how could the other things that they teach be bad? I'm not saying anybody in here. I think that mature Christians have enough sense to be able to eat the meat and spit out the bones, so to speak. <clears throat> but what about the new believers? And they, they come in here and they hear us singing a Bethel song. And then they go and they look up the artist. And it leads them to a church that tells them that they should go lay on people's graves to suck up the anointing off the dead folks. They do that. That's why we don't sing those songs in here. I appreciate Trey uh, for his choices and, and for, for guarding our worship in that way. <clears throat> so in church, we need to be extra careful that we are singing truth and that we're not endorsing false ideas about God in any way. And, and, and really Psalms, we're singing perfect theology. I don't, I don't think that a church should only ever sing Psalms, right? but some churches do actually do that. That's what they practice. That's what they believe Scripture teaches. That's all they sing. Um, and I don't actually think that you can go wrong doing that. Unless you, you, you try to bind everyone else's consciences with it. And say, well, God says you should only sing psalms. Some churches do that too. Uh, but these verses do, um, they do leave room for incorporating other types of songs in our worship. Hymns and spiritual songs. But I do think it's wrong uh, to not include psalms in worship, right? Because Scripture does explicitly command it. And it's especially sinful if a church ignores the psalms altogether and instead just gears their music uh, primarily towards attracting people. Right? Rock concerts and smoke machines and lights and lasers trying to imitate the world to make their worship of God more attractive, uh, making man's preferences the focus of worship. This is this wrong. It's disorderly. This is it's strange fire. It's worshiping God in a way that He has not commanded. It's not in accordance with His truth. All right, element number seven. This is the last one, y'all. Last one is the administration of the ordinances. The administration of the ordinances. That's uh, ordinances. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. We're meant to do both of these things as a church. Uh, we're to assemble together for these purposes. Baptism and communion should only take place outside of the church if one is providentially hindered from gathering. When I say outside the church, I don't mean outside the building. I mean away from the body. Only if somebody just, if it can't be done. Like it's okay to baptize someone if it's just you and them 
and you're you're stranded on a desert island and they just came to Christ, then sure, take them out in the ocean and dunk them. Right? Or if there's just no gathering of saints around, no churches around, which can sometimes happen, like on a mission field. Um, but other than situations like that, these ordinances are to be observed in the gathering of the church. Uh, baptism is a statement of solidarity with Christ and his church. And his church is a confession uh, that's to be made publicly before the people of God that someone has trusted in Christ and has chosen to be identified with him in his death and resurrection. And the Lord's Supper is a confession of our need for the broken body and shed blood of Christ, as well as a picture. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the gracious kindness of our Lord and letting us join him together at his table. It's coming to the Lord's table in the Lord's house. So, both of these ordinances speak of our union with him and our union with one another. Baptism and communion are both family celebrations. They are meant to be family celebrations. And they are both commanded by God. We shouldn't neglect either one of them. So, in closing, I want to examine just one more scripture which we have referenced several times already this morning. And it's found in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. This is Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And he tells her, he says, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The true worship of God is worship that's done in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? What does it mean to worship God in spirit? It means that true and acceptable worship of God can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul said to the Romans uh, back in... Uh, Chapter 12, we, we read earlier, he said, By the mercies of God, offer yourselves as living sacrifices in worship. Our, our very ability to worship God properly with a whole heart and a desire to worship him on his terms and obedience to his order uh, can only happen if God is working in us through his Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit inspires this, this true worship that we've been talking about all morning. The Holy Spirit aligns our desires with his, and he causes that sense of reverence and awe and gratitude uh, and that desire to worship God according to his way and not our own. We don't have those things outside of the Spirit's work in us. Apart from the Spirit's work in us, we will fall. We will fall into this self-worship. We'll, we'll fall into uh, this, 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 this man-centered worship that is so common in worship services today. So, uh, proper worship according to God's order can only be done in the power of His Spirit. That's what it means to worship God in spirit. It is Spirit-led. And what does the Spirit lead us into? Right, what's the next thing? Worshiping in spirit and what? Truth. Right, truth. These two things are, are closely related. Spirit and truth. If you search your Bible, for all of the places where these two words occur together, uh, it's fascinating. 
spirit and truth. John 16, 13 says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will lead his people into all truth. The spirit doesn't lead us into lies. The spirit doesn't lead us into false worship. The spirit doesn't lead us to worship God in ways that he has not commanded him. To worship in truth is to worship according to God's word. That's the kind of worship the Spirit leads us into, according to the truth of His order and in obedience to His commandments. When we choose our preferences over God's, we are not worshiping in spirit and truth. And when a worship service is tailored towards men and seeks first to be attractive and interesting to men, rather than making God the focus and seeking to be obedient to Him in worship, then it becomes a false worship of a false idol. You're worshiping man. So I pray, brothers and sisters, that God will be merciful to us and that will spur us on to worship him in the power of his spirit and in accordance with his truth. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we need your spirit to lead us into truth. We need your spirit, Father, to, to love you. We need your spirit to believe you. We need your spirit to worship you. Lord, I pray. I pray, Father, that you will stir us up. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will that you will swell up within us and overflow out of us. I pray that you'll reveal to us the truth and help us to walk in it, Lord, in our daily lives, in our thoughts, and in our worship. We'll continue, Father, to help us. If there are any ways where we're getting it wrong, Lord, by your spirit, help us to get it right. And help us to recognize what it means to worship a God who is a consuming fire. Help us to realize what it means and to see the reality that we are standing before this kind of God and that we're joining our voices with angels and with every believer who's ever lived help us to offer this worship from a whole heart and a, sp a spirit of reverence and awe and truth Lord we need you to do this Father we thank you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.